G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan. Welcome to Rare and Resilient, 1 in 5,000 podcasts, episode 14. And today we are joined by an IARM dad, Mark from America. And he is, Mark is a father of Eastern Sky, who is three and a half years old. And welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be here. Okay, mate. Now, most of the time we talk to pet mothers and we, it's very rare to we've had an occasional father but this time it's we're going to have just a one-on-one chat to you as a, a father of an IARM child can you take us back to when eastern sky was first born and what you and your wife holly your thoughts and how you dealt with it at the time so leading up to his birth we knew that he had uh, one kidney. Uh, well, one was severely underdeveloped, so we knew that it was likely going to be be one kidney. But that was all we knew um, going into the birth. So when he was initially born, we didn't really notice anything that was that was different. And and he was immediately swaddled following his birth. And so it wasn't for a few hours that uh, that a nurse came in to change his diaper and then you know kind of made this expression that makes you. You wonder as a parent what's going on. You know, a couple hours later, we were traveling to another higher level NICU here in the states, at least. So it wasn't it wasn't identified straight away at birth when the they did the all they're supposed to do all the inspections of the child. You know, it's funny because I remember I was taking photos of him, and I was I was thinking like, is that you know is that off or is that you know different than what I was expecting, but. Honestly, at the time, there was so much going on that I didn't really think much of it. You know, hadn't really been around super new newborns, so I had no idea what I was really even looking for. Where did you have to travel to? How far to the the other hospital? Uh, it was about 30 minutes from us. And that was actually, it was a really, really tough drive. So obviously, Holly had just given birth. And they were not going to be able to, uh, you know, obviously it's hard sometimes having these discussions without bringing in the American healthcare system um, to some extent, but we would have to discharge her from the current hospital. You know, she didn't have a complicated delivery per se, but there's always risks. And then um, she would have had to have been admitted at, at the other hospital because they had both a children's area and a women's hospital. And obviously she didn't want to do that because she was concerned about being separated from him. You know, I, I talked to her and said, look, he's, he's going to get, he was transported by, I guess there's a, there's a neonatal um, ambulance that they can send. And so that's what he was transported by. And so I told her we should stay and try to sleep a few hours before we went over there. Cause there's a little nothing to do. And obviously at that point we were also still like busy searching our phones to understand like factual and all the other things that, that, that might entail because, uh, frankly, the, the f- medical staff there were not super forthcoming. Either they didn't know or, you know, they, they had other things going on. So we were kind of left to, to try to research and understand that ourselves. Um, it would have been scary going through Dr. Google. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, you know, it's not such a common set, set of, you know, challenges that you would find lots of like conspiracy theory type stuff on the internet. That's not really the case. Um, but there, there wasn't a lot of, you know, information about 
if, if you start at a point a how do you get to point c because obviously one of the things that, that we've learned is there is no sort of end state right i think for most people because there are varying degrees of severity there there's not going to be a single solution and so you know one of the things that that struck me as this journey unfolded was every time we thought we had figured out like the thing that was going to keep us up at night then there was another thing uh you know we, we originally thought it was going to be a single kidney and then obviously having imperfect anus with uh, the bladder neck fistula was challenging and then we found out later that he had a neurogenic bladder and honestly that one was the one i think that, that caused us the most trouble in the near term um, obviously the colorectal stuff takes a lot of time and effort as well but it the, the bladder stuff was very uh, challenging to find specialists yeah and how long did he spend in the at the other hospital before you were discharged and you could take him home he was in the NICU for i want to say a little over two weeks overall actually he did i think pretty well you know as far as the role of the dice is concerned uh the surgeon that did his ostomy surgery by all accounts did a very good job you know, we, we took him to Cincinnati Children's and Columbus Children's and a couple other places that had colorectal centers. And everyone said that that portion of the procedure looked pretty solid. Um, so that that was kind of lucky because one of the things that we've certainly heard from other parents is that, and, and probably more for pull through and other things, but that, you know, different, different surgical interventions um, may not have been done correctly by, you know, a surgeon who was not as experienced. And so ultimately there needed to be additional work to kind of uh, correct that. Yeah. And how did you handle the initial change in the stoma bags and, and plus I'd imagine dealing with the bladder issue, it would have been very full on to start with. So we, so I, I'll, we'll talk about those two different elements um, for, for anybody that, that might be listening that has a newborn with, the ostomy bag stuff. I mean, that is challenging for sure. And that was definitely a, a source of frustration sometimes because he was very small. He was only about a month preemie, but he was about just shy of six pounds. But the, so the, the bag and the site was really, really small. And we, you know, we actually found this video on YouTube where this, this lady had, uh, she'd been using like a hairdryer to dry the area post like bath. And, and some of the things like that actually proved really useful to us to be able to understand a little bit more about those, you know, the interlocking mechanisms that you can get for these different types of bags and the different adhesives and experimenting with different kinds of powders and things to try to get that right. Once, once we got into a system, I mean, you would get into a situation where, you know, Murphy's Law would, would intervene and you'd try to go on like a day trip somewhere and the bag would, you know, you'd have two bags fail on you. But Largely, that was not too bad. I, I think if, if I look across the last three years, that had its moments of frustration, but um, it was it was fairly manageable. the The thing that created the most trouble for us that we didn't really understand was the the bladder issues. So he had a test for reflux done when he was born, and there, they did not detect any, any reflex reflux. So he, the first few months after he was born, he was waking a lot 
at night, like eight, nine, 10 times a night. And we would talk to different pediatricians uh, and there was a urologist that we worked with in you know the Washington DC area. And, and everybody was like, oh, you know, some kids are fussy. And uh, obviously my wife felt like there was something more going on. I, I certainly felt that way as well. And, and you would think when, when kids present with more complicated medical histories that there would be a little bit more consideration there, but um, not so much. And in hindsight, I do feel really frustrated with that particular urologist because I felt like they had left us hanging. They, they really should have ordered another test for reflux. And when he presented with eight UTIs across uh, a one-year span, they really should have taken a more active interest in, in getting that resolved. Ultimately, obviously, I think Holly reached out to you or you, you found her on Twitter and, and pointed us to Dr. Alam. And that you know, made a huge difference in terms of getting him back on track, uh, at least with the bladder piece. Because um, now, you know, he, he's sleeping much, much better once we've gotten some of those other issues out of the way. Oh, that's great. How did you and Holly handle the dilations? So we actually were in Dr. Levitt's study, which was to evaluate whether or not um, dilation was necessary to achieve certain outcomes. So and, and I apologize uh, if I'm misremembering the exact term, but there was, because I'm thinking of the beer, it's like there's like a Heineke procedure or something like that. Uh, essentially, there was, there was a, a modification that they did along with the pull through that, that essentially the hope was reduce the need to do dilations. And so he was in the experimental group. There were no dilations. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and we yeah. literally picked, we picked a paper out of a hat. I remember the, the surgical attendant coming through with like a hat with different options and he's like you know what are you what are you hoping to get and i was like look man i don't care i just want him to have a good outcome so not knowing what what dilations entail right so i i think now looking back yeah we got really lucky recently we just had dr wood from nationwide on the podcast and he was talking about dilation study that they did at nationwide and that different families ended up going into different parts of it so it's wonderful that you were part of that program and that you were with the uh the surgical dilation side of things yeah i mean he he did uh our son's surgery for that for that one um while dr levitt was still at, at nationwide now obviously he's out here on the east coast um that was uh, obviously one less thing that we had to worry about Following that surgery, I believe the next thing that we were working on was his tethered spinal cord, which he also had. And, and when that was, was that discovered? So, yeah, uh, they supposedly, they needed to do um, a radiological survey and see what the, the status of, of that was. But apparently they, there was a mix up and they never did it. Or if they did it, they lost the results. So we ended up having it done after his pull through surgery, if I'm remembering correctly, he was already out, you know, he was already anesthetized. And so uh, that's when they realized, Hey, there, there was some tension in the spinal cord itself and they were going to need to do a detethering. Oh, okay. So that was discovered when he went to nationwide for the, the pull through and all that. It wasn't picked up from the initial hospital. 
it, it's possible again that they did the the study, but they just never. You know, this is the other thing. A lot of these different hospitals are not using the same digital medical record systems. Some are using what's called Epic, and, and others are in other systems. And so, we were very fortunate. The first, uh, I guess, two years really after he was born, the company that I was working for was based in, in Massachusetts, in the United States, and they typically mandate more things as part of their health health insurance plans than other states in the country. And so a, a lot of our care that we needed for him was was covered, you know, with, with the exception of sort of the the out of pocket or deductibles, but those were we were very benefit, you know, I think I, I called him the million dollar baby for the first couple months because when we looked through like the NICU bills and the first couple surgeries nationwide, I mean it was it, it you know, they do the what would you pay if you were insured, which clearly no one would be able to pay. But uh, yeah, it was it was seven figures, which was a surprise. The American healthcare insurance system gets brought up a lot. From someone for coming from uh, Australia, it's, uh, yeah, I just don't get it. And I'll never be able to get my head around <laughs> that, what you guys have to, the uh, hoops and all that you have, that you have to go through. Now, how did you get to the decision to go to one of the major colorectal centers after his initial surgery? So did you do the research or, and that's what led you to go to Nationwide? Or was it that you were recommended from the initial surgeon who did the colostomy? How did that all come about? I want to say when we were looking at like Vactral and, and some of the other cofactors that, that we were getting hits on. Columbus and Cincinnati and Boston and a couple other places. I mean, I think we came across, you know, Dr. Pena as well. I, obviously he was pretty far away. So yeah. we were looking for something that was conceivably drivable, even if it was like a long day. We were both in a really good place in, in that we were working uh, predominantly remotely, even though this was pre-pandemic. And so like, I remember jumping on work calls from Ronald McDonald house in Columbus, Ohio, and, and sitting, you know, in the parking lot during longer surgeries that I you know, wasn't as nervous about just, just in meetings so that we could kind of keep working, even if we needed to be somewhere else. And so that gave us the flexibility to say, we're, we're going to pursue care, you know, kind of anywhere on the Eastern half of the U S where we feel like it, it's going to be, you know, as good as we can do. Right. Yeah. As parents, I think that's one of the big, that was a big stressor, right? That we would somehow do a disservice to him by, by rushing a decision, even though often the, the practitioners themselves are like, let's do this. Like, when do you want to do this? Well, get you scheduled and you got to, you got to pump the brakes a little bit say, well, do I feel like I understand all of the, the variables and I'm not going to, I'm never going to be a surgeon. I'm not going to be a doctor, but you know, my background is in cybersecurity. And so I always try to untangle complex problems and so you know they start saying oh we're just going to do this and then we're going to do this and then as you kind of move through the the journey of somebody with Vactral you start to realize there's there's a lot of complicating factors you know a fistula is not just a fistula uh, imperfect anus is not just a perforated anus there's there's varying degrees and, and different outcomes you know uh, stuff like the sacral ratio and, and all this like complicated mechanisms to try to assess like somebody's outcome even then Sometimes those, those just fall flat. You know, we, we've been doing enemas in, in varying forms for the last year. And, you know, I remember one of the things that they told us was, yeah, you know, you do the boot camp thing. We find a, a, a formula that works and that takes a couple of weeks. 
we're, you know, week 53, still figuring it out. He's done, you know, an x-ray every week for like the last year. He's got like 50 x-rays under his belt. And, um, you know, that's, that's a little frustrating. He's had, uh, you know, he had a stricture, which, which looked like it came from the ostomy reversal. And so that was causing blockages for a while. It took a little while to figure that one out and, and get that resolved. There, there's always been like little things. You know, I, I joked um, with some of my coworkers who knew parts of, of our son's medical journey, at least at the, at the time. And, and I said, look, I, th- I feel like to some extent we were very well prepared for the pandemic because at least here, the, the first few months of the pandemic was always like living week to week or month to month. And that's honestly what it felt like the first couple of years of our son's life is we, we came out of the, the hospital in the NICU thinking, oh, we've got this all figured out. We're just going to do these ostomy bags. And then we realized, oh, it's, it's not quite what we assumed it would be. It's a little bit more complicated. And then, you know, you find out more things. And so at some point we just stopped thinking we had it figured out. And instead we just said, okay, this is what we know. And we'll, we'll brace ourselves for what might come next and try to be a little bit more uh, resilient uh, and, and get into, you know, be as routine driven as you can, but expect the unexpected and not to be not, not negative, right. But just more prepared. I always say that to new parents, when I talk to them or whatever, you just got to live in the moment. Yeah, that's right. And so that, that proved to be really useful for the pandemic. Well, at least for the first 12 months, um, because we were able to, to kind of extend that mindset and, and to keep doing that. Yeah. Um, I mean, medical care during the pandemic has been uh, very interesting just because of, we've had restrictions on who can go into the hospital, what procedures are allowed. I, I don't think we've run into a situation yet where he's had any care that we couldn't get in a timely manner, but that was always a fear. That was probably our, our main fear. Um, throughout the last year. And this is the one that question that I really like to pursue with parents and that, how did you handle the emotional side of it as a father and seeing what Eastern Sky has been through? How's that impacted on you and what's been your strategies to get through it all? Yeah. I mean, it was really tough. I mean, he's, he's our only child. So we, we didn't, for better or for worse, we, we had nothing to compare against. So I think that that in some ways might've been good. You know, it's funny because my, my wife and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, people talking about on, on different forums and places, you know, feeling upset that their, that their child was born with a condition that, that's limited them in some way. And, and I certainly have, have felt similar sentiments in the past, but I also think that, you know, hopefully this is, this is life defining Hopefully not in a way that limits him, but but in a way that makes him more resilient in ways that that many others are not. I mean, obviously, I'm still hoping that that medicine can can do a variety of things to make that path a little easier to walk. But I think so much of, of who he will become and, and who he will be is is to some extent a product of that. You know, I, I hope that he's able to take the best parts of that challenge, if that makes sense. You know, developing empathy for others and, you know, perhaps looking into to how he can better help others with similar challenges as he grows up. Uh, I think a lot of the fears that I had early on, you know, I, I was obviously very concerned in, in the first few months about, you know, life expectancy and just 
so many other things. Uh, you know, we're, we're very fortunate that we're not talking about a hundred years ago. So yeah, I, I think he he is, you know, a very curious, very tough kid, and I think that those are good qualities to have. And it's hard to say if if those to what extent you know the nature versus nurture how much of that is because of the circumstances around his his upbringing and how many of those are just sort of inherent you know i think it's you know it it, it is intertwined kind of with who he is and i and i think that that's hopefully that's something he can be proud of to some extent you know when he gets older absolutely and you say he still has the enemas and he still, I'd imagine, gets cathed with his bladder. Is that right? Mm-hmm. As he's got older, has there any? have you noticed any discernible change in how he handles that? And he's sort of like a bit more, uh, he knows what's going to happen to some extent? Yeah, I think, you know, the interesting thing about BN3 is he doesn't understand at this point, what, what's normal for other kids. Correct. Uh, you know, I, he, he came home the other day and there was a kid in his preschool class who's, you know, potty, potty training or potty trained. And he was like, Oh, you know, so-and-so was using the bathroom the other day all by herself. And like the teachers were saying, what well, good, you know, good job that she did. And, you know, I think that that's one of the, the concerns is that I have as a parent is, is how, I'm going to frame, obviously, along with with Holly, that discussion around, you know, yeah, we're we're celebrating that these kids are are having successes. You're you're having successes of your own, whether whether you realize it or not. Um, but but they are different in in some ways, and so you know he's going to be confused, I think, when he realizes other kids don't cath and and why that is uh, the way that it is. But you know. I, it's interesting. I was on social media the other day and, and ran across this guy who um, was a, a soldier and had been deployed to Iraq and had, had been hit with a, a bullet from a sniper. Um, he, he was paralyzed as a result and has been back in the States for a number of years. And he's, he's been in the medical device research field as a result of his injuries uh, being paralyzed and and so they've actually been doing a lot of work around catheters because in in the states at least it looks like there's a little over a million folks who i guess it wouldn't necessarily all be neurogenic but but you know different challenges as it pertains to the bladder and so they've got a device in phase two trials that will allow someone to sort of leave a, a indwelling catheter for seven days and 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 this is for for males specifically right now based on the physiology and the way that the vice would kind of be positioned but you know the dod is actually funding some of that research and i think it's out at ucla and there's a couple other groups that are teamed up but you know i think about something like that and by the time he's a teen i mean it'll be out of fda trials the next year or two assuming that there's no major issues so, you know, the, the vision that I have of him, you know, worried, is he going to have enough of the antiseptics and, and the lubricants and these, these catheters and 
it's going to have to walk around like a backpack of this stuff. How does that work? How do you do sleepovers? I mean, a lot of that actually might be manageable in a different way than it even is now. And not just for him, but for, for a lot of other folks as well. Cause you know, we, we think about, I remember that one of the first conversations we had uh, shortly after he was born. And as we started to understand some of the challenges, we're like, how's he going to do sleepovers? How's he going to do this? You know, we want him to obviously be able to have the same experiences that we had as kids. And, you know, with, with med- medical advances, I mean, he's got a mini ACE, right? So he's doing enemas by way of, of a flush through his abdomen, which is, is obviously very different than doing it rectally. Cause I know that that, well, he had a stricture at the time, which was part of the problem, but that he, he did not have a good time with that probably again, because, because of the stricture as much as anything else, but you know, with the, the mini ACE that's made life a lot easier. And then something like an indwelling catheter that doesn't require changes five or six times a day, that would be a big change as well. Did you notice a, a distinct change in him, like his behavior and his reaction when he went from the rectal enemas to the mini ACE? So I, I do, I do have a story I'll share. I apologize to him in advance if he hears this in like 15 years. Um, but we, you know, we, we were very, you know, we had, obviously we had all these ideas about like how things would go as, as we raised him, like, Oh no screens until he's like 20 and, and this and that. And of course uh, he was probably, I guess, two. We started doing the, the rectal enemas and we were really struggling to keep him focused and not move around, you know, trying to put an ostomy bag on a, on a little kid that's moving around, trying to do enemas on a little kid that's trying to move around. These are, these are not easy things if they are worked up and there's, there's no amount of like coercion and, and, and you can't really promise them like candy and things because <laughs> that's not going to solve the problem either. So we said, okay, we'll, we'll let him watch a show. And it's obviously very, age appropriate programming like thank goodness for netflix you can just yeah. all that stuff but uh we weren't sure how well that was helping because he was still having discomfort during during the enemas and after i want to say about a week of that he wasn't saying a ton of words yet um maybe 30 or 40 words but uh i was like hey buddy you know do you want to do you want to watch a show or whatever and we said we got to get the enema started first that was always the condition and and I remember he was laying there and he was like, put it in my bottom. He just started yelling. He's like, put it in my bottom. And I was like, well, my wife just like, and I just started cracking up. We're like, well, I guess it works. I mean, you know, it's it's clearly not so bad that he doesn't want to to go through it if he gets screen time out of it. So we yeah, we were we were able to get those going and and like, but yeah, mini ace is much easier. It's the logistics all around are just much better. And at what age did he get that surgery? That was early too. I guess that was actually done last pandemic has really thrown my ability to my recall back, but it's, it's been within the last year that, that he had that done. I want to say it was probably in the spring of last year. So it was around two and a half, which is fairly young for that. Young, super young. Yeah. So that, Dr. Levitt did that, that procedure. Did that procedure. Yeah. Um, and, and I recall he, you know, he had mentioned that that he, he had been working with the, the urologist as well because they were looking at like you know the option of vasectomy and potentially doing this or or both or you know seeing what was going on with the appendix because that's what they wanted to use. And so when they looked, they said, "Yeah, the, the size is sufficient to accommodate that." 
end and, and we can move forward with it. Um, funny, funny thing though, is when I was talking with, with Levitt, you know, he, he had this anecdote where he essentially conveyed that he had his appendix removed when he was younger. And I was like, oh, I see, you know, this is, this is your kind of campaign against the appendix because, you know, your appendix tried to hurt you when you were younger and, and now you've decided to, to you know, seek your revenge. But, you know, honestly, it's, if this is their revenge, it's, it's really good. He did not have a ton of complications from it. I think we were super nervous when we had to change that, that tubing out the first time. But I think we, we gave him like a tiny square of chocolate and, and just negotiated the heck out of it. And he, he did give us like 30 seconds of just not moving and being quiet, which was all it took uh, to get those swapped out. And then I was like, oh, that was way more fussed than because we were just, we, he had, what did he have before? He had something else in prior to the mini ace. And I remember that that popped out and we couldn't get it back in. And we were like freaking out. Well, I was going to say, that'd be very scary. It was a longer tube. And, and there was just more concern on our part that we were going to kind of push that into the wrong spot. And so that, yeah. The, the mini ace has been pretty easy. How is he now? Like, I've seen photos on social media that Holly puts, and he seems to be very active and up and about all the time. Yeah, he is uh, super high energy. So I would say he's typical of of the three year old crowd. It's been hot and humid here lately, but uh, when it's not, he he wants to run around a lot outside. He wants to play on all the the equipment i mean he is doing i think everything you would you would expect a kid in, in his age and development level to be doing which is awesome to see as a parent obviously that's very rewarding yeah oh and it's a credit to you and holly because i know the amount of time and travel you have put in to take eastern sky to different specialists to get the best care available and to find the answers that you were looking for. And it, it certainly has been a journey for the both of you, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, it, it is. Yeah. It's, it's half the time it's, it's taking care of him. And the other half of the time it's, it's sort of advocating on his behalf by way of, you know, finding specialists or trying to understand how to overcome certain roadblocks that kind of that pop up during care like hey why is this getting us the outcome we're looking for what can we do you know is are there any alternative approaches that we can take to to get him to a good place i think everybody has a moment in their life when they're getting when they're growing up from from kids to adulthood when they start to realize that like their parents are not they're more human than you realized you know you you have them as this sort of mythological thing almost who are infallible and you know, obviously operated with the best of ethics at all times. And I think in a similar way, uh, the medical field to me was always kind of a mystery where, you know, doctors are largely infallible and they, they are always making the right decisions and they have all of the information that they need available to them to make that decision. That was a real surprise to see how much uncertainty there was in, in certain aspects of care. No, there are, I think there are some situations that are very clear cut, but uh, once you start delving into, you know, one in 5,000 type stuff, you have to really advocate 
against um, folks who want to be dismissive of, of these challenges. And that's hard. That's a hard place to sit, to have a doctor say, well, I don't think it's a big deal and to be like, but it is because you don't have the medical background to do that. And, and I think people are certainly on the medical side wary that you know, you, you've run off and Googled a bunch of things and now here you are an armchair expert. Um, that, certainly that's not what we're doing at all. I think it's more an issue of, we have a good grasp of what our son's normal looks like. And anytime we're kind of out of that, you know, that boundary where we're trying to sort of raise a flag about it and, and draw attention to it but it is, it is tough. I mean, we would take him to ER kind of like walk-in type emergency places and have to spend the first 10 minutes explaining all the historical context about why they were there and why this UTI is a problem, like why it shouldn't just be ignored. Um, because his original urologist put a note in his file that said, yeah, this kid's bladder is just going to be colonized. Like, it's not a big deal. Just ignore it. And when we went to this other walk in kind of medical clinic because he had a fever and was throwing up. They said, well, yeah, he tested positive for UTI, but this urologist says it's not a big deal. I'm like, well, you're going to have to ignore that guy because he's not a urologist anymore. We're still finding, this is before we found a lot. We're looking for a new one, but he's terrible. You've got to ignore that. And she's like, well, it's in the notes. I'm like, ah. So ultimately we did convince them to do, uh, to basically send off the, the urine to a lab so that we could get specific, you know, sensitivity testing so that we could figure out what to treat it with because you know, he was refluxing and in that situation, the bacteria was getting back to the kidney, which was cause him harm if we didn't get that under control. It's a great example of parents really knowing their child more than anyone and knowing that when there's something wrong and with the complexities of factual and ARM, it just, you soon become your own expert, don't you? I mean, with within reason right yeah i mean we're we're fortunate that we're working with the folks whose studies you know tend to be what you're going to find online but but even then you you can have discussions about like are are we getting the outcome we'd hoped for perhaps this is you know one of the the tougher cases and what are we going to do about that like we're we're now in uncharted medical territory there is no playbook for this because as far as we know, this is the only case you've ever had go this long. Like, so now what do we do? And that's, that's been, that's been tricky. You know, with the flushes and things, we've been having to kind of read between the lines as far as like the mixes and things that we use, you know, they'll have a proposed formulation and then based on his reactions, we'll, we'll try to, you know, go back to them and then adjust that. But that, that does require us to be very diligent in, in keeping records about that. I know that's something Holly's been really good about. Um, you know, what was the ratio today? How did he seem to respond to it? Because, you know, the, the doctors aren't even doing that. They're not tracking it at that level of granularity. They'll come back and say, we'll try this other flush. Well, we already tried that one a couple weeks ago, remember? Oh yeah, I guess, I guess we did. Or, you know, you'll have the, hey, try, try this. I mean, in the last three years we've had two prescriptions where the dose was off by a 10th in one case it was supposed to be one and it was 10 uh we we were on this airplane with these like two or three massive syringes full of pink antibiotic and and a buddy of mine at work his his partner was a pharmacist and so i said hey like what is the 
this is the prescription that we got. Like, is that normal? And he's like, that is literally like, you can't go any higher for that body mass. Like that is ridiculous. He's like, and I'm not sure with one kidney, that's a good idea. And so that we went back to the, the doctor's office. We'd only given them you know, one, one dose or whatever. And they were like, oh yeah, that is a little bit high. Yeah. Let's dial that back. And then when I saw the math for like how they dialed it back, I was like, whoa, like, guys, we, we, we are very vulnerable to that kind of thing. Cause I don't have the pharmacological textbooks sitting around. You know, we've had the enema formulation come back and they're like, use 25 glycerin. And we're like, you mean like 2.5 or, you know, whatever it is. That's, that's not the exact scenario, but stuff like that. We're like, oh yeah, good catch. And I'm like, it's tough as a parent to have to think that you've got to make those catches. It's like you have to be alert at all times, isn't it? Yeah. There's a certain level of vigilance that comes with it. And, and that is tough. I think that having you know, we have these centers of excellence where they try to have more integrated care, at least here in the States, um, by bringing the practitioners together. And I, and I think that that's really good. I can't imagine what it's like when folks don't have that opportunity, because I think that's going to really complicate things. Even, even with the sort of integrated care, there's some rough edges. But again, not, not having anything to, to compare with it, I, I think that Judging based on our son day to day, I think that the overall outcomes have been pretty good. One of the great things that has happened in the last 10, 20 years in our community has been the multidisciplinary uh, models of, in America, especially like with Columbus, uh, Cincinnati, yep. Colorado, Boston, Kansas. Like there's many of them now that are, and they're all sort of like based on a similar model. Unfortunately, that's not all the case in other parts of the world. Right. We've seen examples of there's a lot of families in the States that haven't got the means or the insurance cover to actually even get to one of those multidisciplinary centres, which is just, I know there's a frustration in a lot of families that they hear about the centres and they'd love to get there, but they just can't. And, you know, yeah. your story is an example of you you get to the right uh, specialists in the centers and it can hand, help the child's life so much, can't it? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, we've been very privileged in that respect. If I was to ask the question to you, what would your advice be to a father whose child has just been born with similar issues to your son now? What would your best advice be to him? I guess it would be that, that you're going to have to be patient. And that's really hard. You know, I think a lot of people have this characteristic, but I think some dads may have it more than others where you, you see problems and you want to fix them. This, this is not one of those where you can just take any, any particular action and, and make it go away. So being really patient and, and expecting that these things take years to, to be resolved. You know, the other thing is that, and this isn't unique to Vactral, but when, when kids are born with complex medical challenges, it can be very isolating. And, you know, the, the CEO at the company I was at had, had a son who had more neurological issues, but I remember him taking me aside and saying like, this, this is an extremely isolating experience. And 
you need to remember that that there are folks out there that that can help with that and and not to try to take it all on yourself emotionally and so you know i've i've had some friends and some peers who were very proactive in in reaching out you know trying to engage with me you know sometimes it's tough because they're like hey you know how'd the surgery go or how'd this go and and maybe that one didn't go as well as i had hoped or you know, you had three ostomy bag blowouts that day and you're feeling really frustrated. And so I, I would get frustrated because I didn't feel like I could convey, you know, where the pain points were, but most of them, you know, stuck with it. And, and after a while, you know, I was able to kind of, to reach out more and, um, you know, feel more comfortable sharing more about what was going on. You know, that was something I struggled with was how much I wanted to, to talk about it. Um, Is that because of the, the perceived stigma of the condition or just you just weren't confident in how you could express it? I mean, I think part of it was, you know, I, I deal in a world where information is, is really powerful and I didn't want it necessarily to to tell my own son's story before he had the opportunity to do so himself i mean i think that part of the reason this this discussion is a little different from that is obviously because it's there are a lot of parents out there who are going on this journey and i I didn't have a a podcast like this or, or anything to kind of look to i think that would have been really helpful you know having having a network there is is obviously really powerful i know for my wife having you know the the pull through network and other groups that she could reach out to um, has been invaluable and and for me i i haven't necessarily reached into those networks as much as as i have just kind of the the folks that i've already had in my in my life who are friends um to kind of lean on them yep and one of the, I suppose, one of the issues that we do have on the in the social com, social media communities and the support groups and all that is that the reality is ninety five percent of them are mothers. There's not a lot of fathers that are on there, which is absolutely fine. How have you found like the mothers take on a lot of the burden? Right yeah, from that's the start. true. Right. And how have you found your role as a husband to Holly to support her through a lot of this? Because that that gets brought up a lot with you talking to families and all that, you know, the dynamic and how the the part, how the dad can support the mother. Yeah, it's it's been that's been really tough. Um, candidly, I think that we've we've been working you know a lot more to 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 communicate um you know at some points in the first couple years of of his life you know the communication was when we were kind of switching child management responsibilities for the day so you know be okay you're going to take him for a couple hours this is what i got out of the cath this is what this was like you know this was these data points and so you just have a series of of metrics that you were conveying to one another, almost like you were, you were changing watch at some kind of, you know, air traffic controllers or something. Um, and we really weren't 
operating in kind of a, a relationship at that point. That's that's obviously not representative of every day, but there was, you know, that was thematically, I think, accurate at different points. And and we had to, you know, be a little bit more diligent about focusing on us and, and communicating more about hopes and fears and aspirations, it, it, both, you know, as a family and, and what was going on with his care, um, because it does dominate a lot of the conversation. I think that's natural, but sometimes I have to pump the brakes and be like, look, we can't, we can't solve this today. Like we can talk about this issue till we turn blue, but you know, ultimately we've got to wait for, you know, specialist whomever to reach back with, with inputs. And so while we're waiting, let's talk about this other thing or let's redirect a little bit because yeah, you got to pace yourself to, to some extent. The world is all about getting people spun up and, and sprinting all the time for all the things. And so it's, it's tricky sometimes to make sure that your own family's situation, medical needs and others don't, don't follow that same path. Yeah, and I really appreciate you being so candid. I believe it's such an important issue that probably doesn't get get discussed as much as it should be because of it because of the the topic it is. It's all encompassing, it and having to support each other as parents is it's so important because it makes so much difference to the the child. Yeah, I think that the you know the next thing that I'm that I'm looking towards is understanding how will prepare him to deal with the social aspects of, of growing up. You know, he, he presents as very typical. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily expect that he, he's got these different challenges. And so I, you know, and, and that there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't know how four-year-olds will react to it. I don't know how we'll explain it to them, how we'll explain it to him. You know, one of the things that I heard early on when we were, seeing specialists was that, you know, some, some kids obviously really struggle with depression and anxiety, which uh, a lot of kids do anyway. Right. And, and without any complicating factors. And so we've tried to seek out specialists who can help us both, both help the parents and help him as he grows, manage some of these conversations, because I do think that they're going to come up and to the extent that we can, we want to be prepared to have those conversations with them. You know, I know that there's going to be kids that are going to, that are going to tease or be mean at some point. I think that's inevitable. And so having a strategy around how to handle that, I think is going to be really important. Now I could be wrong, right? And that would be great, but that's not really how we approach things these days. Yeah, well, you sort of like alluded to it earlier when you said he came home and he was talking about the little girl who was congratulated about going to the potty, haven't you? So it's sort of like I'd imagine that then stirs those thoughts up. Yeah, and there was another little girl in the neighborhood who's, you know, five or six, and, you know, she was like, why is he still in diapers? And I was like, what's wrong with being in diapers? And she was like, I don't know, and like walked away. Yeah, I mean, depending on how his different regimens for, for the colorectal stuff work out, you know, I, I don't know what that's going to look like. And so uh, I do feel a little bit protective of, of that and not kind of knowing where that line is in terms of being overreactive. 
yep. um, versus just recognizing that like kids are going to be curious and kids are going to have questions and that's not necessarily a bad thing right that that's an opportunity for dialogue and so we'll we'll see in the immediate future is is there anything um, upcoming as far as any medical procedures it has to be done or what's the current status um there there are no surgeries on the books i i have a feeling we're not done um but you know we're the waters are quiet right now as, as far as that's concerned and so from from my perspective uh not not going to try to rock the boat at least until the you know this next wave at least here in the states of uh, the pandemic kind of sorts itself out and kind of then refocus on okay like are these flushes going as well as we hope do we need to do another imaging study where do we need to go for that when do we do that um, and start you know working through those challenges yep well mark look i can't thank you enough for what you've shared with us today there's going to be so many fathers out there who i believe you're going to have such an impact on by opening up and being so candid and mothers as well then you know might open the conversation with their partners that they feel they might might need to have so mate I can't thank you enough. And um, Eastern Sky is one very fortunate little fella to have you and Holly as his parents. So once again, mate, well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's it's no problem, Greg. I think he's he's made a tremendous difference in our lives as well. No, it's it's opened our eyes to a lot of things, and I think it's really helped us grow as people. So we're very proud of him. And you know, last thing I would say to to any parents listening a lot of these kids are, are going to be able to go and, and have, you know, the kinds of lives that I think that we, we hope for them. And um, it, there's a lot of effort between, you know, that, that young state and that adult state. But I think uh, that's, that's something to kind of keep in the back of, of their minds is that they, they can get there. Uh, even if it's, it's a bit of a slog. Great advice, Mark. So once again, Mark, thanks so much for being a part of our podcast and uh, I wish you, Holly and Eastern Sky, all the best, mate. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks.